So what we're going to learn today, so we're, we're, uh, we're going to talk about the flood, so the timing of the flood's onset, the details of Noah's obedience, this is a theme that, uh, that the Holy Spirit comes back to over and over again in these couple of chapters from 6 to 9 is o, uh, Noah's obedience to the Lord. Uh, the flood and hu- human genetics we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about the fact that the, the Bible tells us a number of times the ark's passengers goes through. Uh, there's an emphasis on what's on the ark, and then the fact that God shuts the door. Uh, the flood covers the globe. Uh, there's a total destruction of life on Earth, and we'll talk a little bit about the burial of fossils at the end. So uh, first, we'll do a little bit of review. So last time we went over evidences for the flood, and I've got um, I've got a paper here by Dr. Andrew Snelling. I have a few copies of it. I, I posted the electronic copy of it on Hopebook, but here's a couple of, I think I have four or five uh, paper copies of it if you want to take one of those. Uh, Dr. Andrew Snelling is a uh, PhD geologist. He's a, he, he's a geologist for a living, um, and he has written kind of, um, he wrote uh, a two-volume set of books that are like geology textbooks that explain all the geologic evidences of the flood, but if you don't want to read a thousand pages of geology textbook, here is a, a four or five page synopsis of it, which is also available electronically on Hopebook, like I said. So what did we talk about last time? All these evidences for the flood. Well, one of the evidences for the flood is these flood traditions that we find all over the earth. And uh, it's not just the fact that they have um, a tradition of a flood, but that there are so many elements of the biblical story in these flood traditions. Now, most of them have been corrupted over time, and interestingly enough, the ones um, from the Middle East, the Assyrian, what were called the Assyrio-Babylonian ones, especially the uh, Gilgamesh epic, um, are the closest to the biblical account. And then as you get farther away, they... Uh, some of the elements of the biblical account drop off. <clears throat> so basically there's these flood legends and traditions from cultures around the world with these remarkable similarities to the biblical account of Noah's flood. And of course this is not surprising if we take the biblical account as historical record of what really happened. Uh, the, the people, the immediate descendants of Noah's sons were at the Tower of Babel. Um, and they all knew the true story of what happened in the flood. Then God confused their language, they were scattered around the world, and they took knowledge of the flood with them uh, when they were scattered across the earth. So it makes sense that the flood would be passed down in all those languages and cultures, but without the Holy Spirit's supernatural preservation, all those flood legends changed either a little bit or a lot. over the years. Only the true story in Genesis has been perfectly preserved. And so this is what we would expect if the sequence of events that happened in the Bible, including the Tower of Babel, actually happened. <clears throat> so what else would we expect to see? So if there was a big flood, what we'd expect to see is billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. That's what we expect to see. If, if there was a big flood that wiped out all life on earth, then there should be a record of billions of dead things, and the record should be preserved in rock layers that are sedimentary rock, rock that was laid down by water, 
and that should be, the extent of it should be all over the earth. And that is, in fact, exactly what we see. Uh, and the best place to see it is the Grand Canyon. We talked about why that is last time. Uh, the Grand Canyon is what geologists call a water gap, and there are water gaps all over the world. Um, it's a place that is um, in mountains with a, a valley carved out by the flow of water, and geologists can tell that by looking at the fine details of the structure of the uh, Grand Canyon, that it was carved out by water. And the same thing exists all over the earth, but they don't look exactly like this. And we talked about why that is, because this is a desert, and so there's no rain, and so there's no plants. And in other places, there is rain and there is plants. And so, uh, first of all, the water causes erosion, and then the plants that grow cause erosion, and eventually it looks like an ordinary mountain valley doesn't look like that anymore after 4,500 years post-flood. But this one has been preserved because it's a mountain that's a desert. Um, and so that's what we see. Yes. Yes, they are. So, yes. So this is a unique opportunity to look at what, what, hap what looked like after the flood because everything else has been changed by erosion, and this is not. So what happens when we look at something like the Grand Canyon? Well, it depends on your worldview. What kind of presuppositions do you bring to the investigation? So here's Scientist A. He has a uniformitarian worldview, a secular worldview. He looks at the Grand Canyon and he sees, oh, that must be caused by natural processes over millions of billions of years and a particle at a time deposition, slowly cut by the river. Someone who looks at the Grand Canyon with a biblical worldview says, aha, that looks like supernatural creation, thousands of years, global flood, deposition during a flood, canyon cut out catastrophically. They look at the same evidence, and they come to different conclusions depending on what their presuppositions were before they started looking. Um, and this is how the human mind works. Um, and so when you're talking to an unbeliever, we have to realize this, that they don't look at the world through a biblical lens, and so they can't see it for how it truly is. But we can help them to try to see it the way it really is uh, by giving them some facts, some facts that are much more compatible with um, a catastrophically cut Grand Canyon than a particle-at-a-time evolution, evolutionary lay, laying down of the, uh, a, a gradual laying down of the layers and then a gradual cutting of the canyon. The, the facts are much more supportive of one view than the other, and that's what we talked about last time. So there's two possibilities then of explaining the observations that we see, the scientific observations we see in the Grand Canyon, a little bit of water over a long time or an enormous amount of water over a short time. And so when we look at the evidence there, uh, we see lots of evidence for an enormous amount of water over a short time. Uh, we talked about six, uh, six lines of evidence. And uh, Dr. Andrew Snelling, in his book, um, goes through all six of these in great detail. And if you want to look at the short paper he did, either on Hope Book or one of these um, hard copies that I brought here today, he, he summarizes those six lines of evidence that the Grand Canyon was laid down quickly, catastrophically, by an 
enormous amount of water. And so those six lines of evidence we talked about last time. Uh, fossils of sea creatures high above sea level because the oceans were covering all of the land masses. And so we see that in the Grand Canyon. The, the top layer of the Grand Canyon where the rim is is called the Kaibab Limestone. And it's between seven and 8,000 feet above sea level depending on where you are in the canyon. And it's made of marine limestone, so it's made of limestone that was laid down underwater. And it contains fossil sea creatures, enormous numbers uh, of fossil sea creatures. The red wall limestone, which is a little bit further down, but still 5,000 feet above sea level, has all these marine sea creatures in it. We also see evidence in the Grand Canyon of the rapid burial of plants and animals. We see it all around the world, but it's easy, really easy to see in the Grand Canyon. There's billions of straight-shelled chambered nautiloids in the Redwall Limestone. There's fossil graveyards that are across hundreds of miles of northern Arizona and southern Nevada. Um, there are these vast fossil graveyards, not just here, but all around the world. We talked about one in France. We talked about one outside of Chicago. There's one uh, in Montana. Uh, these fossil graveyards where there is a mixing of different creatures from different ecosystems, including sea creatures and land creatures, all mixed together. Uh, there's rapid deposit of sediments spread across vast areas, and we can see these layers with our own eyes in the Grand Canyon, and then geologists can trace them across all of North America. Uh, we talked about some of them, the Tapit Sandstone, which is towards the bottom. Uh, the Coconino Sandstone and Tapit Sandstone are towards the bottom of the Grand Canyon, and we can trace those, geologists can trace those across all of North America. So how did a single layer get laid down on a continent-wide le le level? And this is sedimentary rock, so it was laid down underwater and laid down together, it's the same sandstone layer across all of North America. And so what that requires is an ocean that was across all of North America at one time, at the same time, because it had to lay, this is the same layer of the same sandstone, all the way across North America. Um, we have evidence of the transport of sediment from long distances. We have these, uh, uh, what's, what's called um, sand waves, so the remnants of the water flow that is that is uh, left imprinted in the sand that's left behind and all those waves point in the same direction um, and so geologists have been able to make tests boreholes thousands of boreholes all across North America and all these sand waves are pointed in the same direction um, and so what is required for that is water flow in the same direction over a size of a continent um, and so what could cause that? Well, something like the runoff from a gigantic flood could, could cause that. Um, and so we see all these lines of evidence. Uh, we also see evidence of rapid uh, strata de deposition with no erosion between strata. So what we would expect if it took millions of years is as a strata is laid down, there would be time for wind and erosion to occur before the next layer was laid down, if there was a bunch of time between layers. But that's not what we see in the Grand Canyon. We see very uniform layers with no erosion between layers. We also see uh, bending and folding. Um, and I think I've got some pictures of that 
uh, here in a minute. Let me, uh, yeah, so um, this is hard to see, but um, there's some very tiny people in this one picture here. Very tiny people. So this is a, a gigantic formation that's, uh, you know, like 100 feet. Um, and it's folded. The rock goes like this. Um, now, rock will not do that. If you try to bend rock, it cracks. It, it won't go into folds. The only way it can go into folds is if it's still wet. If you, if you have sedimentary rock and you lay it down and it's still wet, hasn't had time to harden, then if you apply, apply force and pressure to it, it, you can fold it. But you can't fold it once it's hard. And so in the evolutionary story, the, the long ages story, rocks like this, uh, those sediments represent uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of years. And so in order for it to look like that, <clears throat> you have to believe that it stayed wet for hundreds of thousands or millions of years, not hardening. And, and that really doesn't make much sense. And we see rocks like this all over the world. Uh, there's some very famous uh, examples in uh, the Alps. If you look at some pictures of the Alps, you'll see very severe uh, folding of the rocks in the upper uh, reaches of the Alps. <clears throat> and it's sedimentary rock, and it, uh, it does not make sense for that to have been hard for 100 million years and then to fold. There's, there's no known process that we have to make rock fold like that once it's hard. Because once it's hard, sedimentary rock, it will crack if you put pressure on it. It won't fold. Okay, uh, then we talked about Mount St. Helens at the end of our time last time. So uh, Mount St. Helens was in 1980, and so there were various uh, geologic events around Mount St. Helens that started in June 1980 and went through about 1982. Uh, but so um, the actual eruption was in June of 1980, and the sedimentary layers, see these sedimentary layers? And there's a person for scale. Um, those were all laid down in three hours. Three hours. We, we were there. We had eyewitness. We, we know what it looked like before the eruption. We have pictures of what it looked like before. There were pictures right after the eruption. And this massive amount of sedimentary layers of rock, those sediments were all laid down in three hours uh, from 9 p.m. to midnight on June 12, 1980. And so this kind of layer cake sedimentation can occur we know for certain from watching what happened in Mount St. Helens, it can occur in very short order. Um, and it looks a lot like uh, the Grand Canyon. In fact, uh, the, the secular geologists called this the Little Grand Canyon. That's their name for it. Um, uh, the canyon that was carved that now shows these uh, sedimentary layers um, was carved in one day in March of 1982. So one day there was a flood um, down the side of Mount St. Helens and it carved this canyon through that, uh, those sedimentary layers in one day. So we have absolute physical evidence in the present that this can happen very quickly. And from a small flood, we get a little Grand Canyon. From a big flood, we get a big Grand Canyon. But the mechanism is the same. 
Okay, so, yes, go ahead. Uh, this is too far afield, just move them off. Um, my memory for sedimentary rock is you got to have a bunch of sand and it's got to get squished underneath a whole lot of layers of other rock and stuff like that to turn it into sedimentary rock. But you're saying this stuff was all formed with water. It, can you remind so, me real quickly how, how that works? Yeah, so um, when... Um, there's transport of, of uh, sediments in water. Uh, we can actually do laboratory experiments with it. They're called uh, slurry tanks, big tanks like the size of this room filled with water and, and sediments, and you slosh them back and forth and see what happens. And in the laboratory, we can see that those sediments sort themselves they actually sort themselves on the fly while they're going through the water uh, based on the density of the particles. So it'll sort out into layers, even if it's moving through the water. And then if you stop the water, they precipitate out, and they precipitate out in layers. And it, it doesn't take any time. I mean, it, it just, as soon as they precipitate out, within hours, you have layers of the sediment that used to be taken up in the water that was moving along. And so you get that layer cake look, but then it's still wet. It's still wet until it hardens. And so it does take some time for the water to evaporate out and for the rock to harden. And so there is some time where it is layers, but it's layers that are kind of wet sand, wet sandy particles. Um, and if you apply some sort of uh, geolog geologic process of pressure to it, then you can make those layers fold. Like if it gets pressed from the sides or pushed up from underneath, it, it'll bend if it's still wet. But once it hardens, it, it actually will harden. The water will, will, will evaporate out eventually, and it'll harden into rock. That takes a little bit of time. Um, but once it does, it's hard. It turns into hard rock. And it doesn't require enormous amounts of pressure to do that. Um. So what I think I, the hypothesis then is while the earth was covered with water, a lot of sediments were getting floated around and stuff like that. They precipitated out. Yep. And then they moved around again, and another layer precipitated out after that? Well, no. So uh, there was enormous amounts of water flowing with enormous amounts of sediment in it. And they, they, the sediment settled over a short period of time. Now, the, the floodwaters, we'll see, we're going to talk about this next time. We're going to focus on this next time. It took about seven months for the floodwater to flow off the continents and into the current ocean basins, about seven months. So that's about the time scale, seven months for it to come to, to for it to precipitate out, and also to carve water gaps, especially towards the end. Um, it, it would have carved it, once you get channelized flow. So first you get what's called sheet flow, and then you get channelized flow, um, and you can see this on small scales uh, if you watch. Uh, uh, waves come in on the beach, you can watch a sheet flow, and then it can end up being a channelized flow in small areas as the water goes back out. Sheet flow and then channelized flow. Um, and so if you look at, yes, go ahead. Well, and for the pressure, the water creates a lot of pressure. The water does create pressure, I, that's true. I, I posed that to a geology professor, and I 
well, wouldn't, wouldn't water over this amount of time, creating that pressure. And she looked me in the eye and smiled and said, we're not going to talk about that right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's, yeah, a lot of times you'll get that kind of reaction. Yeah, so there is, there is so it, we're talking about seven months. And so for some number of months, there is a big column of water over top of uh, the sediments. There is some pressure involved, um, but it's it's still wet. Uh, it's still wet sand at that point. So there's still kind of water um, that needs to evaporate out after the the flood water uh, recedes. Um, but if you look at something like the Grand Canyon, so the Grand Canyon, the rim of the Grand Canyon is actually way below where the sedimentary rock starts. Uh, there's, a, there's a formation called the Grand Staircase that's near the Grand Canyon that goes much higher than the, the, grand, the rim of the Grand Canyon. And if, if you look at an aerial, if you look at a satellite view, you can actually see it really, really clearly that there's about 14,000 square miles of sedimentary rock that's been stripped off above the rim of the Grand Canyon. Uh, and you can see the formation of the Grand Staircase go up from there. And so the rim of the Grand Canyon is actually well down into the area of sedimentary rock that was carved away by the receding flood. Uh, about 14,000 square miles of sedimentary rock stripped off above the rim of the Grand Canyon. And that's sheet flow, of like continent-wide sheet flow. Um, and then once the, the water had gone down to the point where it was in just channels of water being flowed out, tiny little channels like the size of the Grand Canyon, then it carved the Grand Canyon. Um, and so you have, to, you have to, it's difficult to imagine, but you have to put your mind in uh, in this, in the, the scale of this thing is so big. It's, it's not like anything we see today. Uh, continent-wide flows of water, then channelizing down to something the size of the Grand Canyon. And the Grand Canyon, if you've been there, is absolutely enormous. But the Grand Canyon-sized flow was just a tiny little channel compared to the continent-wide sheet flow that was just before that and was stripping off um, 14,000 square miles of sedimentary rock before it even started carving the Grand Canyon. And you can actually still see evidence of that. You can, ex you can definitely see it from space, and you can see it by looking at the formation of the Grand Staircase um, uh, above the rim of the Grand Canyon. So, uh, and geologists, flood geologists call this the Great Denudation denudation and the great erosion. So the great denudation is giant sheet flow taking off uh, uh, this, this uh, sedimentary rock above uh, the Grand Canyon, present Grand Canyon rim, and then the great erosion is the channelized flow that cut the canyon itself. And so this is a good, we can see the effects of the flood really well in the Grand Canyon uh, because there hasn't, it's a desert and there hasn't been much erosion since in the 4,500 years since. So we're going to talk about fossil formation today. It's one of, one of our topics today. So 
hold that for a second. So let's go back to the flood. So we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to go back to chapter 7. We're going to cover verses 6 to 24. The flood begins and rises. So if you open your Bibles or your devices to uh, Genesis chapter 7, that's where we're going to be today. And so I want to read these scriptures um, that tell us the facts of the flood. So this is the facts of the flood as, as recorded in the Bible, the historical record of what happened in those days. And so here's how the Holy Spirit has chosen to describe it. Uh, the Bible says, starting in verse 6, Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood, of clean animals and animals that are not clean, and birds and everything that creeps on the ground. There went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered male and female of all flesh entered as God had commanded him and the Lord closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days, and the earth and the water increased and lifted up the ark, so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed fifteen cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. And so we get a timeline. The, the Bible makes uh, carefully constructs a timeline of the flood. Um, and so it tells us that it was the second month, the 17th day of the second month of Noah's 600th year. And so we have an absolute beginning of the flood, the 17th day of the second month of Noah's 600th year. We'll find out in chapter 8 when we do this next time that they come off the earth on the 27th day of the second month of Noah's 601st year. So that is one year and 10 days. So day by day, the, the Bible tells us exactly what day the flood started, exactly what day... Noah and his family and the animals came off the ark, and it's a year and ten days. That's a really long flood. A year and ten days is a really long time. We find out at the end of here, chapter 7, that what we call the prevailing phase was 
about five months, 150 days, and that means it's another seven months for the water to run off and for the land to be dry. Uh, so five months of the water covering the whole earth and seven months for it to run off back into the ocean basins. It's a big flood. It's a year-long flood. We, we don't see anything like this anywhere uh, subsequent to this Noah's flood. Okay, it's not a local flood. I mentioned this before. It's definitely not a local flood, and we'll, we'll talk about the language that the Holy Spirit employs here. Uh, so as an overview, we have the chronology of the flood. It's very carefully crafted to the nearest day. Noah boards the ark with his family and all the animals. Then God shuts the ark's door. Notice that it's God who shuts the dark door. We'll talk about that today too. The flood begins with enormous amount of water from the fountains of the great deep and from rainfall that lasts 40 days. The flood is clearly global. It prevailed for five months and it covered all the high mountains. And we'll talk about the fact that there's no reason to believe that the mountains were exactly the same height as they are today. So uh, we know if uh, we can do a calculation about uh, how much water is in the, in the ocean, uh, if the earth were a smooth sphere, the seawater would cover the surface of the earth to a depth of about two miles. Uh, so there's plenty of water to cover the whole earth right now in the oceans. Uh, so the flood was responsible, and we'll, see, we'll talk about this at the very end, the flood was responsible for the fossil record, and we'll talk about why that is. Uh, it's not a sequence of vast stages, but a sequence of burial as the flood buried successive ecosystems as it encroached on the land from the sea. Okay, so let's take a look at the text. What does the text say? So uh, the first few verses tells us um, when it started. So Noah was 600 years old. Um, his sons and his wives go into the ark uh, because there was a flood coming. And the animals go into the ark. Um, and they go in by male and female. And of course, God, they didn't have to round them up. God, uh, God caused them to come to Noah and go into the ark uh, by males and females, the animals. Uh, so in verse 6, we see the pr precise beginning, the record, precise record of the timing of the flood. Um, Noah was 600, that means his sons were 100, so we found out in chapter 6 that when Noah was 500 years old, he had uh, his children Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We don't know if they were triplets and born together, or if they were born in close succession after he was 500, but the Bible tells us he was 500 years old, then he started having kids, and he had these three kids, and so the kids are about 100. So he has them when he's 500, the flood starts when they're 600, so the kids are about 100 when the flood starts. Uh, I've, I promise the math won't get too much harder than that. Um, and so, it, and Noah lives to be 950, and so he's 600 when the flood starts. He's got a year on the on the, so he's got about 350 years in the post-flood world for 349, because there's a year of the flood. Uh, but he's, he lives a long time after the flood, you know. 350 years, it may not, that's a blink of the eye to those guys that were living to be 900, but that's a long span of life that he had after the flood, 350 years. Uh, Shem is the longest lived person after the flood. He lives to be 600, so he lives about 500 years after the flood, and nobody lives anywhere near as long after that. Uh, the next few generations go into the 400s, and then it drops down to the 200s, and then 
Um, a few generations after that, by the time of Moses, it's 120. Yeah. I just realized that uh, only eight people on the ark, and if they were at 100 years old, that means that they didn't have any children before going on to the ark, or they didn't go join them on the ark. So we yep. don't have any information to know as to why that is, but we do know that it. Yeah, they started. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they uh, only eight people on the ark, and so either. As you say, Shem, Ham, and Japheth didn't have any kids before they were 100, or they had kids and the kids didn't come with them on the ark. Uh, but the Bible doesn't say. The Bible does say that they had kids after the ark and will follow the, uh, the kids of Shem, Ham, and, no, and, and Japheth, especially in chapter 10, uh, the table of nations. It actually sh- uh, talks about where they went, um, this, the sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Um, okay. Uh, so we get an inf- then we get a, a repeating of what went on the ark. So we've, we've heard this already, what was going to come on the ark, and now we get what actually goes onto the ark. And of course, it's the same thing that God said would go onto the ark, actually goes onto the ark. Uh, eight people, the family of Noah, the land animals that God brought. Uh, notice that the, it's, the Bible says they went, they went into the ark. So Noah didn't have to go find them and herd them. Uh, Noah's obedience to God, previously stressed already twice, 6.22 and 7.5. Now, this section of scripture repeats again, that everything here is as God commanded Noah. Uh, So we get the fact that God is in charge, and we get the fact that Noah is obedient. God is in charge, Noah is obedient. And that's reiterated over and over and over again. So I showed you this uh, diagram before, but... In red is the age the person was when the son that the Bible describes was born. And then in gray is the rest of their lifespan. So here you have Noah, 500 when sons are born. Another 450 years after that, Shem. Uh, 100 um, when his sons are born kind of after the flood. And he lives another 500 years after the flood. Um, so this gives it, this gives you an idea of how long... Noah and Shem lived after the flood. In fact, they outlived many of, uh, Shem in particular, outlived uh, a bunch of his uh, grandsons, great-grandsons, great-great-grandsons. So Shem was still around, as I mentioned before, in the time of Abraham. Um, And so Shem was there to uh, be able to uh, you could have gone and seen, if you had been alive then, great-grandpappy Shem, and he could have told you what it was like in the pre-flood world, and he could have told you what it was like on the ark for the year of, uh, of the flood. He could have told you what it was like to come off the ark into the strange new world of the post-flood world. He could have told you that face-to-face for many generations after that. And we talked about the fact that that's why it was not at the time necessary for Genesis to be written down because the stories could be told face to face. But once the generations started shrinking and once Shem was gone, then it needed to be written down uh, so that it was preserved. And so the Holy Spirit preserved it by having Moses write it down. So, yeah. Question. So, okay. so that means that Adam died before the flood, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, his sons also died before yep. the flood. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there were only two 
that died with the flood because they were not. So, yeah, if you do the math, uh, Methuselah and Lamech seem to have died the year of the flood. Uh, so they so didn't get on the, on the ark. They didn't get the ark, and the Bible doesn't tell us whether they were actually killed by the flood or if they died that year before the flood started. Don't know. But they were not on the ark, uh, and they died the year of the flood, those two. So, uh, so basically, yeah. like, kind of like God sa- you know, like saved this, this initial people that he created. He didn't, they didn't die. During the, during the flood. So, so yeah, so uh, everybody died, of course, except but for... But not for the flood, not because of God's wrath or... Well, so, yeah, so because of the curse, because of the... Um, so when Adam and Eve sinned, there was the, the series of punishments that God meted out. And one of those punishments was death, and he had told him that beforehand he'd said if you eat the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you'll die and so they ate of the tree of the knowledge of fruit of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and they died and so everybody died and we when we went through uh, genesis chapter five we saw that that's a, a a reality that keeps showing up verse after verse in genesis chapter five he had sons and daughters and died he had sons and daughters, and he died. He had sons and daughters, and he died. Over and over again, he died, he died, he died, he died. Um, and so that is God, the Bible telling us that God is faithful to his promises. Um, the ones that are um, that we consider nice and pleasant and wonderful, and the ones that are uh, ominous and dangerous, too. Um, so he promised that they would die, and they died. And we see that in Genesis 5, repeated over and over again. And then um, this event in the flood, he, he, God reaches down and kills probably millions of people all at once mm-hmm. um, because of wickedness on the earth is what the Bible tells us. So, yeah, so God keeps his promises. He does what he says he's going to do. Um, so uh, continuing along, uh, so from the biblical information, we can deduce some things about modern genetics, about population genetics. Um, if the... Genesis account is an accurate historical record. So, for example, all human males have the sex chromosomes X and Y. 23rd chromosome pair uh, is an X and a Y for all human males. And we get our Y chromosome from our biological father. So, barring any mutations in Ham, Shem, and Japheth, there was only one Y chromosome on the ark. Noah's, which he passed to his three sons. Same one. Only one Y chromosome on the ark. Thus all men since Noah have inherited that one Y chromosome. And the only difference would be caused by mutations during the 4,500 years since the flood. And this is exactly what we find. And it's very shocking to secular humanists, to evolutionists. They're shocked that there are no highly divergent Y chromosomes. They've never been able to find a highly divergent Y chromosome. They're all very similar in every single male across the entire planet. And if people have been around for hundreds of thousands of years, and there have been that many generations, there should be highly divergent Y chromosomes, but there are not. Um, and, and that's very shocking to evolutionists. Not so shocking to those who read the Bible and see that there have only been 4,500 years since the flood, and there was only one Y chromosome on the ark, and so we expect them to be very similar across males on the entire planet. And so when when 
when the science shows that that's true, we say, not surprised, evolutionists are really shocked by that result. Uh, so we talked about the human genome before. Uh, there are 46 chromosomes in 23 pairs, um, and you get one, of, one half of each pair from your mother and one half of each pair from your father across these 23 chromosome pairs. So you get one chromosome number one from your mother and one chromosome number one from your father, and all the way down through the chromosome pairs, and then there's something special at the, uh, the 23rd chromosome pair that determines your sex. And so uh, every single one of us gets an X chromosome from our mother, and then we get either an X or a Y from our father. And if we get a Y from our father, then we're a man. If we get an X from our father, then we're a woman. It's very simple. The science is very simple. Um, and so that's um, this Y chromosome. There was only one type of Y chromosome on the ark. Now, we're going to talk in a second about X chromosomes. How many X chromosomes were on the ark? So eight. Eight. So there were eight X chromosomes because there were four women, and each one of them have two. Each woman has two X chromosomes. And so there were four women, so there were eight there was only one Y chromosome, but there were eight X chromosomes on the ark. So female humans have XX configuration of the 23rd chromosome pair. Since there were four women in the ark, there could have been eight different X chromosomes on the ark. There could have been fewer. How could there have been fewer? There could have been fewer if the, the daughters-in-law were sisters. So if, if, the, if the sons of Noah married sisters girls that were sisters to one another, then there could have been fewer than eight. Uh, but if they weren't sisters, and there's no indication they were sisters, then there was eight. Uh, the maximum would be eight. Or if the, if the uh, daughters-in-law were related to Mrs. Noah. So if they were like nieces of Mrs. Noah, then they could have had the same X chromosomes as Mrs. Noah. But assuming that they were not relatives... Uh, to one another or to Mrs. Noah, then the maximum is eight. There, there would, would have been eight. Um, um, Noah's wife would have passed on one or both of her X chromosomes to the three sons. So uh, if you go back to this one, um, each of the three sons of uh, Noah get an X chromosome from their mother and a Y chromosome from Noah. And, though, and so she has two, and so... The, the boys get one or the other of her X chromosomes. Now, it, it could have been all the same one. That's possible. 12.5%. Uh, 50% 50, 50 chance over three times is 12.5, right? 50% chance that you, roll, that you flip a, a heads on the coin. Uh, then 25% that you would flip two heads in a row. And 12.5% that you would flip three heads in a row. And if that happened, then uh, all three boys could have got the same X chromosome. Or they could have got uh, one of them could have got the other, so they could have, she they could have passed them uh, she could have passed both or maybe only one to the next generation. But we would what we would certainly expect is much greater diversity in X chromosomes around the world because there were eight of those on the ark than the one Y chromosome that was on the ark. And of course, that's exactly what we see. We see much greater diversity of X chromosomes than we see of Y chromosomes around the world. There's another thing. Um, there's also, uh, there's two genomes. There's, a, there's the um, 
the, the sex genome, I mean, the, uh, uh, the, the DNA that, uh, that forms the pattern of who you are, everything about who you are. There's also a much smaller genome called the mitochondrial genome, uh, mitochondrial DNA. Um, and the mitochondria are kind of the, the power uh, organelle in the cell that, uh, that provides power to do things. And that DNA is only passed from your mother, from one mother to the next generation. And so it's only then passed down through history by mother, daughter, 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 right? Because if a mother has sons, the sons can't pass that mitochondrial DNA on. Only, so it's only passed through the mother. So it has to be daughter, 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 daughter. Um, and so the mitochondrial DNA from Mrs. Noah it went extinct because she only had sons. So her mitochondrial DNA ends. But you have the mitochondrial DNA of three daughters-in-law. Um, and so what we would expect, if the Bible is true, is there would be three kind of mitochondrial DNA lineages. And that's exactly what we see. Modern science is, and, and the, the, the genetic scientists call these three lines MN and R. They, they give letters to them. Um, and evolutionists are really surprised by that, that there's only these three lines of mitochondrial DNA. Um, as a student of the Bible, I'm not surprised because I can look at the number of people on the ark and see that there should only be three mitochondrial DNA lines in the, on the whole earth. And in fact, that's what we see. Um, so, and in fact, when evolutionists look at this, they, they, they postulate that there must have been a population bottleneck at some time that went down to only three women. Um, because that's the only way you could have only three mitochondrial DNA lines today. Is it, there must have been some time there's a population bottleneck to only down to three women. And, uh, and as, a, as a believer in Christ and as a believer that the Bible is true, I can raise my hand and say, oh yeah, I know, I know about a population bottleneck that went down to only three women there on the ark. Um, I can tell you all about it. Um, but yes, yeah, so this is another area where um, modern scientific discovery has caught up to what the Bible has said all along. Okay, so um, continuing, the Bible tells us that this flood started on 17th day of the uh, second month, Noah was 600 years old. We'll see that uh, at the end, they come off the ark a year and 10 days later, 27th day of the second month, the next year. Uh, there was, the Bible tells us about two sources of flood water. One is the fountains of the great deep, and the other is the floodgates of the sky, or the floodgates of the heaven, depending on uh, which, by, which English translation you have. The floodgates of the sky or the heaven then gets a description in verse 12, that that's 40 days and 40 day, nights of rain. The fountains of the great deep have been the subject of speculation. Because there's no exact description of exact, well, what is that? What is the fountains of the great deep? But most commentators seem to agree that it was some kind of subterranean water. So some kind of water coming up out of the earth. And that, um, most likely, if you do a kind of a, if you apply some scientific analysis, most likely most of the water came from under the earth. And why is that? Well, if... Um, if we if we look at um, climate science today, when when you analyze uh, when you're trying to look at uh, greenhouse gases, for example, 
Uh, CO2 is a very weak greenhouse gas. It causes almost no warming. Very weak. Water vapor is an extremely powerful greenhouse gas. Uh, if you increase the water vapor a little bit, you get a big temperature increase. You can put a lot of CO2 in the air and you won't get much temperature rise. But if you put water vapor in there, you get a big temperature rise in a big hurry. And so um, you can do calculations, thermodynamic calculations about how, well, how much water vapor could I put in the air, in the atmosphere, before I would cook the planet and no life could exist. And it's not a whole lot. So uh, I, I couldn't put, for example, enough water in the atmosphere to flood the whole earth up above mountains. If I put that kind of amounts of, of uh, water vapor into the atmosphere, um, you get temperatures like 900 degrees or 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface of the earth. Um, and obviously nothing could live with that kind of temperature. So obviously most of the flood water could not have been in the atmosphere. Otherwise the planet would cook. Uh, so most of it had to come from either the pre-flood oceans coming up over the continents or from underground. Okay. Uh, once again, we're going we're to talk more through this timeline next time about what happens. The timeline for, that we're going to cover today goes up through the 150th day, um, about five months into the flood. We're going to do the, the back seven months of the flood uh, next time. We're going to talk about these details that are in there about uh, the ark resting on the mountains and the peaks being seen and the, the, the birds being sent out after that. <clears throat> So uh, we get a reiteration of the, what's in the, in the ark. Um, we get a reminder uh, that they were doing as God had commanded. And then we get the absolute final act, the point of no return. Uh, the door is shut on the, post -flood, or the pre flood world um, there in verse 16. So God himself closed the door of the ark. That's what the Bible tells us. And notice in verse 16 that both of the key names for God that come up in Genesis, in the early part of Genesis, are used in verse 16. We have, as God commanded, and that's Elohim, uh, that's the name of God as the almighty creator of the universe, as God commanded. And then, in the second half of verse 16, we have the Lord, Yahweh, close the door, that's the covenant name, the personal covenant name of God, Yahweh. The Lord closed the door. From this point, humans and animals outside the ark were doomed. God had closed the door. That was it. No more chance to get on the ark. So this divine enclosing of the ark assured the people inside that they were a divinely protected, believing remnant. And the use, therefore the use of the covenant name Yahweh for the closing action is befitting of this divine protection. God had shut them in. He was protecting them. This was his designed salvation, and God shut them in. Uh, then the flood comes on the earth. So the account implies um, that the mountains, uh, the, it tells us that the mountains were submerged, uh, but it doesn't imply that the mountains were the, the, the current height. So Mount Everest, of course, now is 29,000 feet high. But if we look at Mount Everest, it's got marine limestone at the summit. So marine limestone, so it's limestone that was laid down under the ocean, is at the summit of Mount Everest. 
And there are fossils at the summit of Mount Everest of ocean-bottom-dwelling crinoids, a kind of shellfish that, that goes on the bottom of the ocean. And that's the fossils that are at the very top of Mount Everest. So uh, the other thing, the other piece of the puzzle, is we can see obvious geologic evidence of uplift. And so there are um, current evidences that geologists can look at that point to uplift in the past. In other words, that an entire formation is now higher than it was at some time in the past. Um, and so there has been, there's obvious evidence of uplift in not just the Himalayas, but in mountain ranges all around the world. So, in other words, sometime after the flood or during the receding stage of the flood, the mountains were coming up. Um, and so, even with lower mountains, it still must have taken an enormous amount of water to cover the entire Earth's landmass. So, where did all that water come from and where did it go? Well, there's actually enough, well, I've, I've mentioned this a couple of times, but we'll take a look, a little closer look at it now. There's actually more than enough water in today's oceans to have covered uh, the entire Earth at one time. So right now, the Earth's surface is about 70% covered by water. So you get about 30% land and 70% water today. Also, the average ocean depth is about 2.4 miles. The average depth of the ocean across the entire globe is about 2.4 miles. The average continental height above sea level is only half a mile. So 70% covered with water, and the ocean, the average depth of ocean, is much, much, much deeper than the average height of land. And so when you do the calculation, well, and also the deeper, it's much deeper at its deepest point than the highest point. So the Challenger Deep in the Marianas Trench is 35,814 feet deep. That's more than a mile deeper than the height of Mount Everest. So you could submerge Mount Everest down into that thing and still have a mile of water on top of Mount Everest. Uh, so if you made the Earth into a smooth sphere, the current seawater that we have in our current oceans would cover the entire surface of the Earth to a depth of almost two miles. So there is plenty of water existing in the current oceans to have once flooded the continents. So how would that work? So... Um, in order for that water to run off the continents, it had to have somewhere to go. And that somewhere to go was the ocean basins. And so I mentioned this one time before. The, the ocean basins are made of mostly um, uh, igneous basaltic rock that is much denser than the continental rock. And so ocean basins dense, continental rocks much less dense. When you have a, a differential in density, what happens? The dense material sinks, and the lighter material rises. And so sinking ocean basins, rising continents, water will go where? Water will go to the lowest point. And so the water will run into the ocean basins, off the continents into the ocean basins. Um, and so the geologic formation of the earth points to this kind of a mechanism that Ocean basins sink, uh, continents rise, water there, therefore runs off. Now, it was gradual enough to take seven months to do that. Okay, uh, so two miles, there's plenty of water in the ocean. 
Crown Ocean holds plenty of water to flood the entire earth. Uh, now, let's talk about what uh, the effect of the flood was. So notice the absolute language. So starting in verse 21, we, talk, we get the effects of the flood. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. I don't know how this Holy Spirit could be more clear than this. Uh, use of the word all four times here, along with the repetition of the kinds of animals, is used for emphasis. We also get the word every for additional emphasis. Nothing outside the ark survived the flood. No land animals and no people. Uh, if this section of scripture, in this section of scripture, the Holy Spirit seems to be intent on communicating the absolute nature of the flood to ensure that two things are crystal clear. Number one, the flood was global in extent. We have this global language used over and over and over again for emphasis. Number two, and even more importantly, God's judgment was total and inescapable, with the single exception of the salvation God himself provided on the ark. And so this is the theological lesson of the flood, that God's judgment is total and inescapable. And this is why both Jesus and Peter in the New Testament use the flood as the type, the case, the example of what's going to happen when Jesus comes again. So when Jesus comes again, the judgment is total and inescapable, with a single exception of the salvation that God has provided. Um, and so if you weren't in the ark, if you, weren't, if you didn't take advantage of God's one one, exam, one possibility of salvation, his one method or means of salvation, if you weren't on the ark, then you died. And if you don't take advantage of God's one means of salvation in Christ, when Christ comes again, then you're going to die. And that's what Jesus says in the New Testament. That's what Peter says in the New Testament. And they use the flood as their example. Yes, yeah, yeah. So Noah was a preacher of righteousness before the flood. That's what. That's right. And so Noah did preach. Uh, but Jesus also says, up to the day that the flood started, they were marrying, giving in marriage, and then the flood came and took them all away. There, there were warnings, yes. And, and they were also surprised when they came in spite of the warnings. And, so, and Jesus says it's going to be the same way when he comes back again. Obviously, we've got lots of warnings that Jesus is coming again. The Bible is really clear that Jesus is coming again. So the warnings are there. And yet, people are going to act surprised um, when Jesus comes again. And, and so the parallels are there, and, and Jesus deliberately draws that, that parallel. Your unbelieving friends cannot see this. They, they can't see it. And so, uh, and as I mentioned in the classes before, when I do apologetics, one of the things, my goal is to put a rock in their shoe, to, to bother them so that they, they have to think about this when they ordinarily wouldn't. They would put it out of their mind and say, no, we know that the earth is millions of years, there was never a global flood, and, um, and so, this won't, so this won't act as a warning for them. The flood does not act as a warning for our unbelieving friends because they don't believe there was ever a flood. And that's what Peter says. Peter says a time will come when scoffers will scoff and say, where is this coming? Second coming of Jesus. Everything has always been the same as it was before. Peter says, no, 
there was a flood and, and God came in and judged the whole earth at one time and he's going to do it again. But Peter says scoffers will arise and they will scoff and say that there's everything has always gone along as it, as it did since the beginning of creation. Um, and so, yeah, so they can't see it. And it is a great blessing that you can see it. Yes. So uh, Romans chapter 1 makes that really clear um, that um, all are condemned uh, under condemnation because what is what can be known about God has been revealed to them. Um, so it, it's interesting if you look if you read through the whole Romans uh, uh, one passage that there's a um, there's a passage after Romans one twenty is the famous one, but later on there's a passage that says, um, knowing God, they did not worship Him as God. And in English, that's not as powerful, knowing God, because it, it's not clear. In the Greek, there's an article there. It's nantes tantheon, nantes tantheon, knowing the God. It says that in the Greek, knowing the God. It's really clear that they know the God of the Bible. Really clear in the Greek, in Romans chapter 1. Um, and so the things that can be seen from creation and the nature of man, that's what the Romans chapter 1 particularly says, from creation and the nature of mankind, in themselves, they know the God of the Bible. That's what, that's what Romans 1 tells us. They know the God of the Bible because of what they can see in creation and what they can see in themselves. Now, it doesn't mean they know the gospel, but they know the God of the Bible. So, uh, And then we've, we finish out this section of Scripture. This is the last two verses we're going to do today. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth for 150 days. So repetition of this word, this verb, blotted out. It's translated into English, blotted out. Um, or uh, there could be other uh, words that are used in your English translation. Uh, but it's a very strong word in the Hebrew. Uh, this word that's translated blotted out, it means to exterminate or obliterate. And, and notice what the subject of that verb is. The subject of that verb is he, God. God blotted out. So it's really clear from the Hebrew that it's God who is doing the exterminating and the obliterating. Um, it really gives you pause. Uh, and once again, we get a list of all the things being destroyed by God through the flood, men and animals outside the ark, and then a contrasting list of those who God saved in the ark. God obliterated, exterminated, uh, blotted out all these things outside the ark, and God saved this remnant inside the ark. And then we see that the, what's, what uh, theologians call the prevailing stage. So the prevailing stage of the flood lasted about five months. And then the receding stage is what we're going to study next time. It took about seven months for the water to drain off. Uh, burial of fossils. We have uh, four minutes left to talk about the burial of fossils. I'll probably have to cover this more next time. But um, a globe-covering flood would be lethal to land-dwelling vertebrates because it covered all the land, including man, and also killed a lot of sea creatures. Actually, a majority of the fossils we have today are fossils of sea creatures. Um, many would have been buried because we had water covering the whole earth and we had uh, lots of sediments in this water, and we have 
the current geologic evidence of thousands of feet of sedimentary rock all over the earth. It amounts to thousands of feet of uh, sedimentary rock. Um, and so uh, the, the, what's called turbidity currents uh, occur when water is moving. Uh, that's currents of water with uh, uh, sludge and particles um, um, in it as the, it moves. Uh, would have had, there would have been bottom dwellings, marine creatures that would have been caught up in these turbidity currents in the water. And we see that. We see about 95% of all f fossils that we have today are shellfish. Not land creatures, not anything else, but shellfish. Um, and many fish buried near the bottom of the fossil record. So, um, these, so the bottom of the fossil record are those uh, sea creatures that were caught in these turbidity currents. And then next we have those creatures that live near water, uh, amphibians and uh, creatures that, that uh, low-dwelling creatures. And then above that we have creatures that, uh, that were in ecosystems that were a little farther away from the water. Now, that's what you would expect if there was a big flood that covered the whole world. Um, and the evolutionists interpret that as creatures that occurred millions of years before other creatures. But from a flood geology perspective, it's just different ecosystems. And since the water was moving around, we would expect there to be big fossil graveyards where they got mixed up. And in fact, we do see big fossil graveyards where they got mixed up. Okay. Um, any questions in the last uh, 90 seconds? Yes, Ron. Um, we were talking about uh, water vapor uh, as a gas uh, causing more heating than CO2. What's the mechanism, the insulation properties of that? Once so, the heat comes in, you can't get it out? Yeah, it has to do with um, the, the thermal properties of water. So uh, water, in all of its states, has very unusual thermal properties, that it's able to... Um, um, absorb heat um, to a much greater extent than other chemicals that we find in nature. Uh, I just remember yeah. this because it explains the specific capacity of people water is about five times that of CO2. Yeah, this, it's, so yeah. That's why like steam burns really fast, also yeah. surface area. So. Yeah, it's, it's the, the particular, uh, uh, the particular scientific term is heat capacity. Uh, so the heat, Heat capacity of water is much higher than the heat capacity of CO2, for example. Yeah, so um, we'll, I'll get into this a little bit more um, in a couple of lessons, but uh, modern population genetics um, tells us that when you have a population bottleneck, it is a genetic disaster. Um, now, if, if you took the whole population of the world right now down to eight people, um, then in a few generations we would be extinct uh, because there's so much genetic load now that if you, if you had to marry your sister now, it would be a genetic disaster. And so when, when the po population was necked down to eight people on the ark, that was a fitness um, detriment to mankind in that who, who did... Who did um, Shem, Ham, and Japheth's kids marry. So the, the furthest distant relative they could have married was a first cousin. That's the most distant relative you could marry after the 
in the immediate aftermath of the ark was your first cousin. Now, according to modern population genetics, that alone would cause a fitness decrease, fitness decrease, which could very well explain the decrease in uh, in ages after the ark. And so, uh, I've read uh, several authors who postulate that that's the reason. The reason is we had a population bottleneck. People had to marry their sisters or first cousins coming off that ark, and that caused a fitness decrease to the, uh, the age limits that we have. Now, other speculations that I have heard and read are that even though there wasn't you know, a, a huge number, amount of water vapor in the, in the atmosphere that would cause the planet to cook, there could have been more water vapor in the pre-flood atmosphere, at least to a certain extent, and that would certainly have protected people in the pre-flood world better than now from solar radiation. And that could also be a reason why they lived much longer and people now live. And it could be a combination of those two things. Both the lesser protection, because lesser water vapor in the atmosphere, and the fact that there's a genetic load that had built up from creation to the flood, and then marrying your sister or first cousin caused a fitness decrease in the population after the flood. Those two things are the major speculations that I've read, and it could be a very well a combination of the two. All right, good question. So let me close us with prayer.